If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hey everyone, welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Shiloh. And this is Dr. Scott. Welcome back, folks. So we have not put out an episode in April yet, so here you go. We're, we're finally back on it. Just under the wire. <laughs> Just under the wire. We'll see um, what we can produce for you this month, but it has been a crazy month. I think both of us with trainings. Oh, yeah. It's been kind of out of control for me with putting on trainings. Oh, you did attending. a lot this month? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just attended them. Um, I've, I've done both. I, I think I'm actually making room in my schedule to go to some crisis negotiation stuff tomorrow with the FBI to hear a cool speaker. So, um, I have that and then I'm doing a peer support school all next week. Wow. I did, so I, I had to go to one yesterday that was soul sucking, but then you told me <laughs> that he's actually, the trainer is actually really good one-on-one. So yeah. that's too bad. Because I, what I missed was uh, one of my colleagues, Daniel, went to a training that was offered that was by a psychologist who is asserting that all personality disorders are genetically based. Oh, that would have been really interesting. I know. And I don't really be- – I don't want to believe that. And But he has some actual hard data behind it. So That would have been fascinating to see what he Yeah, does. I think the next time it pops up, that's, that's the one I'm going to go to. Yeah, definitely. No, it's it's it, presenting and taking all of your knowledge that you apply in the field and then um, presenting to a group of people are two totally different things. Completely. And the audience that you have to present to, to presenting to cops versus presenting to clinicians versus right. the general public is a completely different thing. Yeah. Yeah. So not everyone is great at it. Yeah. And, um, I think we both strive to sort of hurt, uh, straddle that. You well, know, it's ugh. There was one guy that came up to me. There was one cop that came up to me in the training yesterday, and he looked at me kind of funny, like, you know, you never know if somebody's like going to come up and grab your hand or punch you. And <laughs> or where they know you from. Oh, where I know, yeah, where does he know me from? And he, I had taught his uh, mental health intervention training lectures like last year or something, and he remembered my World of Warcraft reference because I talk about when I was totally, totally just immersed in World of Warcraft, and right. I finally stopped because this 11-year-old kid was making fun of me. He was, like, calling his, uh, your, your armor is wet, wet toilet paper. <laughs> and the, this cop was like, I laughed so hard. Now I've told everybody that joke that you, oh, you got owned. You got nice. totally pawned by a – I wonder if that's the kid that stole all your stuff that time we were in internship. Oh, my God. I didn't think about that. I bet that little <laughs> sucker – 
Well, he, Did you install your and shit? And then stole all my crappy armor, <laughs> which I got back. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Okay, so we are – It's when this comes out, it's going to be April 20th, which is the 20-year anniversary of the Columbine shooting. So – Obviously, this popped into our heads for doing as a topic, and when you and I decided on it, that night, I had a dream that my husband and I were in some firefight with intruders in our home, and I woke up, and I'm laying in bed, and I'm going, we can't do this topic. It's too big. You know, I just had— It's 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 huge. It's huge. We could step all over ourselves and go down so many rabbit holes— um, so I, I was sort of brainstorming after I woke up from this this dream, and I was thinking, you know, I don't want this to be about gun control. I don't want this to be about other school shootings. I kind of had this list of what I didn't want it to be, but I didn't really know how to approach it. But then it got backed up by who was it that you saw that, like, kind of put it – was it a, a news channel that said this is what we're going to do? Right. So – so I sort of dove into like where do I even start right. with this, and and I know I didn't definitely didn't want it to be a glorification of the event. No, either. like we that's got to stop. So that's stop. Um, what I decided is we were going to essentially adopt these guidelines that the major news stations in the Denver area has adopted, especially you know doing a lot of. Um, 20-year anniversary news stories. They're actually putting out um, old news stories from 20 years ago to really see like what was going on as well as follow-up type stuff. And I thought, you know, let's go by their guidelines, which were celebrating the lives that were of those that were killed or injured, not showing any images in any of our social media that we're putting up either of, um, you know, the, the shooters or injuries or any of that stuff, um, not playing any recordings, um, and really focusing on hope and how far we've come since then. Yeah. And when you, when you presented that to me, one of the things I thought about is so much of the way that you and I have worked over the last couple of years putting this project together has been based on our tagline, which is a little bit of snark. Yeah. You know, and, and gallows humor, which I think is always appropriate at, 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 certain points in time and on certain subjects and maybe some people would even argue some of the things that we've laughed about I which I completely would respect absolutely sure. would sure and but I do like that we're at a place right now with this particular subject and who knows maybe our bias is because of the things that have followed and have emerged because of it but you know we're going to do something a little bit different and focus yeah. on the the people that we lost the people that survived and maybe even how to prepare or be prepared for any kind of major trauma right. like that. And not that we're going to you know, go through each victim and their backstory or anything like that, but I, I think there's really been this shift in true crime recently, and I feel like just this year it really started when the Ted Bundy tapes came out and people were really pissed of how over-sexualization was happening with Ted Bundy, and they were like, what about his victims? And there was sort of this backlash and a lot of yeah. you know social media campaigns yeah. about 
you know, focusing on on those that were actually, you know, really harmed by this man. No, okay, so here's where the snark can come okay, in. Okay, I see it okay. on your face. So here's the snark for that particular point, which doesn't necessarily relate to our subject today. Mm-hmm. But the Ted, I watched the Ted Bundy tapes, and I was fascinated by it uh, because you get to listen to his voice and you get to hear his uh, thought processes. And once again, like I've said in previous interviews. How could people not talk to him with his weird use of contractions and overpronunciation of right. words and stilted manner and stilted behavior? How could you not know something was off about this guy? Yeah. That being said, <laughs> you know, I looked at him through new eyes because first there was the media backlash of this over-sexualize it, this normalize it, this uh, – Idol, idolizes mm-hmm. this particular character. And in watching it, I thought, um, they have a good point, but that's not my perception because I didn't think of him as actually per- per- particularly smart at all. Right. I think that for the time and the fact that there was a bunch of dumbassery going on around him in, regarding to, in regards to safety, that he got away with a bunch of stuff that nobody would get away with today, right. really. So I looked at him and I'm like, you know, okay, he when he's groomed, he has a certain look about him, but he's not like this. He's not Zac Efron. Yeah, no shit. I'll tell you that. Maybe that was a time period issue too. I don't know, but it it, or it has just it morphed into this urban legend lore of this really attractive smart man. Exactly. But the idea behind that movement, maybe if the the motivating or driving factor was don't over-sexualize him, don't glamorize it, whether or not that applies, it's actually, I think, a great standard to start setting, especially it's one of the reasons that in, in situations like this, we don't use lone gunmen. We don't use those terms because that's sort of the the uh, glamorization right. of, you know, it's like we're going to be clinical. They're active shooters. Yes. And yes. and actually keeping people's names. No, we don't right. need to. We don't need to glorify their names. Right. I don't, we don't need it. Exactly. So uh, we're going to get into that right now as far as how that's been adopted by a lot of mainstream media and why that is not just because it's like. We shouldn't give them that attention, kind of this moral ground, um, but there's more to it than that. So first, I want to define mass shooting just so we have that. A proper definition of mass shooting is a public shooting in which one or more perpetrators with a firearm murders at least four victims. Now, I've seen some say three or four victims, uh, depending on which one you're looking at, but essentially... And when we get into some of the studies, they need a definition so we can start doing research. Right. You have to have parameters or you can't – you're all over the place, right? Right. Or you can't make any determinations out of those. So public and it's ruling out – so public is because we don't want to take into account like a domestic issue, you know, in someone's home where they murder their entire family. That's not what we're talking about with mass shootings. You know, these are usually stranger or um, associates like if you're – go to the same school. Um, but it's going to eliminate the real close-knit type shootings like a domestic violence situation, but it's also going to rule out something like a gang drive-by. So, yeah, that's public, but those are generally teased out when we look at the research. And 
going back to what we're saying about not using shooters' names, not glorifying them, not giving some cool lone gunman label. Lone wolf. Yeah, yeah. that we can, um, you know, that some people can idolize. Several, several research studies now have shown that the media, media's coverage of these shootings inspires copycats. And that's, there is a wonderful, there's lots of wonderful resources, but I feel like the leader in this is really Mother Jones, who, if you guys aren't familiar, it's a nonprofit um, news outlet that does tons And it's been of around research. for for decades. It's yeah. an amazing, amazing yeah. news source. Um, I saw Mark Fullman, which is the the journalist that focuses on on mass shootings and school shootings, speak at a threat assessment conference, and he was phenomenal. I was just did you ever come across the name uh, Dr. Langham, John Langham? Oh yeah. Okay, oh, so yeah. he was. I think he was an intern at the psych hospital in Denver or someplace close yes. when the shooting occurred. And he got pulled in to help, you know, triage this horrific tragedy and has has continued for 20 years to actually get hard data because there was no hard data on this type of phenomenon. And I think he's tied now. It's There are definitely 43 copycat slash inspired events. Yeah. That 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 he's named. And that's not including others that oh, meet the parameters sure. for research, but he can name 43 incidents that were inspired by Columbine. So so Mother Jones has this awesome graphic which I didn't put up on any of her social media because it just has nothing but names. <laughs> um, but you can I'll, I'll put a link up somewhere if you guys want to look for it, but um, essentially, it's it's like this spider web that starts with the Columbine shooters and then branches out to every shooter that was inspired by them and then every shooter that was then inspired by the next generation, if you will. And it is just – it's insane. It's well, this crazy and, spider web. Yeah, and Langham says very clearly these shootings that exist – have existed and have come about since then. Mm-hmm would mm-hmm. not exist without right. Columbine. Right. Not saying that something else would have wouldn't have happened, but there's a direct connection, there's a nexus between these chain of events. Yeah. So Mother Jones has done several investigations. Again, I, I will put up links. I have all of those. Um, but they found that the Columbine shooting has inspired 74 plots. Now not all of those <clears throat> excuse me, obviously have been carried out. But 74 plots or attacks across, I think it's about 30 states. By the way, that we know of. Oh. Because you and I, in our work with the feds and my having a relative in the feds. And what you do. Yeah. We we know that there are things that are cut off that never – that get stopped in in the nascent origin point that have all the hallmarks of being able to go to that extent, but they get nipped at the bud. Right. I wish more people knew how much that's done across the board. Yeah, that's a double-edged sword because it would right. be so terrifying to know how many of those are going on and yet to have the confidence in your criminal justice system that they're catching them and it's working. Right. Um, that's a whole nother thing. But the, the FBI has also been devoted to researching potential causes of copycats. Um, there's an agent, a supervisory special agent named Andre Simmons, and he had previously led a team of agents that researched like 400 of these cases. Jeez. And 
they found that they believe the media, heightened media attention drives these copycats because they feel like the attention will be given to them. There's infamy and notoriety behind it. And it helps articulate whatever their internal grievance is, why they're angry, what they're going through. Um, this feels like a way in which they can change all that around and have power and have control and leave this legacy, as twisted as that sounds. It is. I mean, uh, you know, there's, I, as I usually do, I recommend other podcasts highly, and there's a really short, sweet one as opposed to the one I just came out. I just listened. <laughs> Oh, I was going to talk about that. It. I finished cold all seventeen plus episodes, yeah. and I'm 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 worn out like a dish rag. Although yep. that was a really crazy, wonderful story. As a counterpoint to that, for Columbine, there's a really lovely, like I think six episodes, very short, put out by uh, Colorado Public Radio, and wonderful interviews, wonderful points being made, and. Not one of the tapes that is used that I think is appropriately done is interviewing one of the copycat women, a young woman, a high schooler who connected with another female high schooler. And she echoes all of these assertions of I want them to feel the pain that I feel. I want them to know how miserable I am because I hate everybody. I mean, she's saying this. Yeah, yeah. Now, what I find interesting is that developmentally we know that teenagers and adolescents go through horrific body changes. It's like none of us would go back to that for anything. However, like you were talking about that sort of the meme and the origin of that meme word of like a viral activity behavior that then gets inculcated into society – how much of what she is expressing in that recording is based on what the Columbine shooters and their other copycats. Right. So are you actually expressing your own feelings or are you just hooking on? I don't know what I'm feeling. I'm miserable. So I'm going to hook on. I'm going to grab to whatever descriptions of an emotional internal state that these people have proposed. I, I don't I don't I wonder if anybody's gonna look at it from that point. I don't know. Oh, that's really interesting. Um so so the FBI has started campaigns called Don't Name Them, the No Not No Nora Right. <laughs> now I can't talk. It's the end of the day. <laughs> no notoriety campaign after um specifically that was after the Aurora Colorado shooting. Yeah. They started those. But it's really interesting that the research shows that the contagion period is highest for producing copycats within 13 days. Wow. Yes. That sounds like something from a movie. Like, remember I, the contagion cal- 13. When, was, wasn't there something like the calendar killer? Like, when they were figured out that he was like doing yes. holidays on a calendar? Yes. Oh, my oh, gosh. That was very 13 days. How did they figure that out? Well, I guess just time and plotting it, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. So, quote from from a um, a paper called "Contagion and Mass Killings and School Shootings" that was published in 2015. So they said, "quote Significant evidence. There's significant evidence that mass killings involving firearms are incented by similar evidence events in the past, immediate past, and the contagion period is 13 days. So there's that immediate." contagion, but there are other studies, especially more recently from like 2017, that say there there's warnings of longer-term copycat effects as well. 
um, it, including, you know, they could be copying now. You know, we're talking 20 years. Was Columbine copying killers that they weren't even born yet? Absolutely. And they're looking to them. So it's terrifying either way you look at it. Yeah. It's a scary time to be a parent. I don't know how many times I've said this on the podcast. I think after incels, I was like, oh, God, <laughs> it's really scary to be a parent for a lot of reasons. Well, and I think, you know, after reading, there was a great book. I think we talked about a little bit earlier in earlier episodes called The Culture of Fear, which is written by a journalist. And he has a great overarching theory about every age, every decade, every generation has to have a particular focus for their fear and their anger. And that is usually flamed up by political forces so that there is, you know, um, there's money to be made and there's elections to be won over pouring gasoline on an unrealistic fear. I mean, so that's one part of it, like the like the Irish. You know, when the Irish were immigrating to the U.S., it was like the Irish are going to destroy everything. And then there was a period that, like, teenagers are just they're, – they're wild animals right. and they should all reefer be – Reefer madness. Exactly. Reefer madness. And, but what was the one – I think that it's interesting to me to think about – when I talk about the missing 411 documentary, which mm-hmm. I think is fascinating mm-hmm. about the children that disappear in rural and mountainous areas. And that has a like a weird kind of kooky bent to it that, may, they, you know, they're saying is something supernatural going on here. I don't know. But like I grew up in I grew up in a rural, a semi rural area where you could, you know, ride your bike at dark, you know, just be home when the street when the street lights come on. Sure. That doesn't happen anymore. No. But then how many disappearances were happening at that time that we don't know about? How many shootings were happening that just didn't get publicity sure. because there wasn't the – I mean, yes, there weren't as many. Right. But now we have instant access to all of this stimulation that's right. going to stimulate these people that are obviously very ill. So like – so you're saying like the stranger danger of the 80s, you know, that sort of fear – that people were feeding on. Um, yeah, the satanic panic. Satanic panic. When they're – with the stranger danger stuff, it's not like sex crimes you know, exploded at that time and they were happening more often. Or even now, I think people right. think like it's happening now. But you're right. It's, it's, um, it's media attention. And it's too. awareness too because sure. children and women have been victims of, of domestic abuse and sexual abuse and, and household violence throughout history we just never talked about it yeah so i mean this is a different situation but once again we live in uh even at the time that the columbine shootings happened i think it was a momentous event a tragic horrific event right at also the the nadir maybe not the nadir but like the origin point of ubiquity of personal computers Right. So now there's places where people can collect online. The idea that, you know, it kind of taking back to when we talked about pedophilia and and, uh, child abuse, sexual child abuse. Why are there so many pedophiles now? Well, they can connect with each other. Maybe they they have always been this uh, same percentage of the population, but they had no outlet. They had no way to connect. And now they can get on the dark web and connect. Just as people with all kinds of interests, like incels and right, as we're and, talk and, about and people with these exactly the Columbiners or uh, active shooter and that meet that profile. The podcast you're talking about is since Columbine. Yes, is that the one. Okay, it's really good. Yeah, it's great. It's really great. 
uh, a good positive spin on you know what's it's beautiful, happened. yeah. Which we'll talk about a little bit more later on about how those how, how what, some of the qualities that help you survive something like this. Right, right. So essentially, the idea is if we're not naming them, if we're not glorifying them, and just reporting very factually, that then others will not be inspired. If if we can keep you know that's that's a hard thing to control. Right. And, well, you're not gonna control necessarily um, media, but if people start adopting these these unwritten rules, just like not naming sexual assault victims, you know, that's kind of a hard and fast rule in journalism. Um, there's another one. I forget what it is. But th- there's some that, you know, isn't a policy. It isn't law, but... Well, and, you know, I think that that's a reflection also. I mean, look, that's a little bit of a mixed message or maybe it's not a mixed message. It's a complex message. In this situation, we're not going to name the perpetrators. We're going to only name the victims and we're going to honor them and honor the survivors. However, it's a re- I think it, I, my professional and personal opinion is that it's a reflection on the puritanical nature of our society that we are so – wary and uncomfortable about naming the victims of sexual assault. If they don't want to be named, I completely respect right. that. I they're guess still that. alive. They they're still alive. Exactly. They can make that decision. However, because if we didn't have such a horrifically puritanical view of sex, it could be people could understand this isn't a sex crime is not a sex crime. It's a crime. There you go. It is a brutal crime of dominance and control, and it doesn't have to do anything with that naughty version of sex except how much we make it dirty. And these are victims. These are people who have been perpetrated upon, right. and they should be honored for their strength and surviving. But once Absolutely. again, it needs to be their choice. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we're looking at whether or not, you know, we talked about you know, there's no more sex crimes happening now than there ever was. But what about mass shootings? And mass shootings actually are happening more frequently, <sighs> according to studies by the FBI and Harvard and Mother Jones, that all the data is basically identical. So this is really robust data that's coming out with the same results. Uh, from 1982 to 2011, they happened about every 200 days. Since 2011, they're happening about every 64 days. I'll let that sink in for a second. Yeah. But that's that's a, a that's significant. scary. I mean, that that's a couple it's, of months in between. Well, it's if, statistically, it's literally off the chart. Yeah. If you were doing a scatter point, it would be a football field away. And again, Mother Jones has a really nice linear graph of this, and you can just just visually seeing sort of the spacing and how they start clumping on top of each other uh, more recently is really a, a powerful image. I want to correct myself. The diagram that I said was like a big spider web, that was Dr. Langham's. That wasn't from Mother Jones. Okay. So it is, it's actually on his website. Um, and it's Dr. Peter Langham, and um, he, he's written a ton of stuff, but multi-victim school shootings in the United States, a 50-year review was probably the most dense of it. Um, And he found in that that post-Columbine, there were greater age range of perpetrators, more perpetrators who are not white males, increased fatalities. That was another piece of the contagion is that as these mass shooters are inspired, 
air quotes, they want higher, higher numbers of fatalities so they can become more infamous. So, and that's specifically stated in their writings and rantings and things like that. And there's also increased suicide rates that he found with, you know, they're, they're taking their lives right at the 11th hour when being closed in on. So, all right. Intense. Intense. That's intense. So when we talk about the mental health impact of uh, these mass shootings, I was looking at a, a, a review, a really great article that uh, looked at 40 peer-reviewed articles about 15 shootings and 27 independent samples, that these mass shootings on, uh, are associated with a wide variety of adverse psychological outcomes, even on indirectly exposed populations. So we're talking about not only the immediate trauma, we're talking about vicarious trauma. So Just people th- watching through their television? Yeah. Yeah? I mean – you know, one of the things that that I remember distinctly, and this was before I was in grad school and I was still working in the in entertainment, and I remember being out one night with several people, and it was a it was the year anniversary of Columbine, and one of my friends said, "Oh God, are we still talking about this?" And I turned to him and I said, "Yeah, we are still talking about it. It's horrific. Like, what do you?" And you know, I mean, I was kind of put off by it because this was not particularly what I would have expected of this person. It was not, you know, I didn't know what to do with it at the time. You know, now two decades later, and I've got a lot, thousands of hours of mental health work under my belt. You're like, guess what? We're still talking about it. Well, we, yeah, that's one point. We're still talking about it. But the other thing is you realize, I realize now that that individual was completely saturated. Right. Like their saturation point had been hit less than a year with the t- with the constant coverage, and that was the only way they could deal with it was just shutting down. Mm-hmm. I don't want to deal with this. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the ostrich head in the sand sure. thing that we sure. want to do. But when we look at the risk factors for the people that can be most affected by this kind of trauma, whether direct, indirect, vicarious, the I'm going to do it in order of statistical significance. It's going to be being female. Okay. So females are more likely to be impacted. And then another factor that uh, impacts that is whether or not there was any existing psychological trauma in their life prior to that. That's not just for females, but also anyone that's going to have trauma uh, or have that experience. If they have a previous history of mental health issues, definitely problems with anxiety or other mental health issues. And most of us walk around with... Something. A healthy amount of fear all the time. Right. right. <laughs> I'm talking about women <laughs> when I say most of us. Right, because it's functional. It's not paranoia. That's a functional fear you have for survival, right? right? That, once again, we talk about men don't have to worry about stumbling out of the club, right? No. Nope. They don't. Uh, what are some of the other ones? Oh, the proximity to the event. So if you think about if you were taking a bird's eye view over an area where uh, a mass shooting had taken place and you think of it as concentric circles. So the absolute explosion point is in the middle where the event has happened. And then as you get farther away, it's almost like a nuclear blast. But what has affected that blast pattern, let's say, so there's, you know, it goes throughout the city and then throughout the state, but where people have direct lines into closer points within that explosion area is through media. Right. So someone who's a little unbalanced, and I mean unbalanced, and I don't mean that. I mean that in a positive way. Right now, I can say it in a negative way in a second. 
they're going to be negatively influenced by watching that and really need to stop watching it. Mm -hmm. And the unbalanced, not healthy version of it is someone who obsesses on it and then maybe falls down either their own psychotic, neurotic rabbit hole to where they end up acting out or they become someone who's like a conspiracy theorist and just refuses to believe that it happens. Right, right. So where do we fall and our listeners fall? Because we obsess, but (laughs) we don't turn into that. I I don't – who knows? You know what? Maybe maybe what we're doing is our way of addressing that because we deal with a lot of heavy stuff and, you know – I, I think that there's certainly a lot to be said about uh, having an internal reserve of resilience for this type of thing. Mm. And it's a, it's everybody has a different level that's optimal for them because you can certainly burn. I mean, after listening to 17 episodes of Cold, I needed to go watch The Good Place. I had to watch oh, like five God. episodes of The Good Place and I had to. That's what I was talking about, where I needed a break from that after watching, like, Abducted in Plain Sight. Like, I just needed a shower and just, ugh, detoxify from all that. Yeah, so I think our listeners are the healthiest in the world. But that's just my my bias. (laughs) Now, also, one of the things that can influence the level of trauma experienced is if there's an actual personal relationship with one of the victims. And the victim could be... You know, you yourself, if you're in that position or a victim, but if you're a friend, if you were right next to the person who was killed or you were a relative of the person who was killed, that emotional proximity is going to play a huge part in it as well. And then one of the the most important constellation of uh, factors has to do with what's the level of social support and Social support, meaning, you know, how is the family interacting with each other? How is the peer group interacting with each other? The community, if there's a community of faith or involvement in a church. And then what confounds it also on this is age. So if it's a teenager who's struggling with those kind of interpersonal relationships anyway, mm-hmm. you know, which they talk about in, was it, I'm sorry, after Columbine? Mm-hmm. This young woman who had experienced it just went home and crawled into bed. Yeah. You know, she totally depersonalized. She ran out of there. She's a survivor that ran out yeah. and ran home and, and went to bed. looked at her mom kind of blank and crawled into bed. Yeah, and her mom had did not know what to do. Right. You know, and I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a – you know, it's no reflection on her mom that her mom didn't know what oh, to do no. because it is an absolutely – it's ordinary people in a horrifically extraordinary situation. Sure. So younger kids, if we talk about kids in a – I mean children in a situation like this, certainly younger children in elementary school are going to have more likely to be eventually diagnosed with clinical parameters of PTSD. And, uh, yeah, the, the highest – and then students who are involved in this, the highest level of their uh, intensity of their symptoms is going to be within two to six weeks after the event but can last anywhere from – a few days, a few weeks, a few months, up to years. I mean, we may put a different label on what they're experiencing, right. acute, distress, acute distress disorder versus PTSD. But once again, we want to, as clinicians, we always want to be open to what is this person experiencing? What do they need as right. far as a treatment outcome? You know, this reminds me of a lot of studies that came out after 9-11 
were literally people on the other side of the country just watching over and over and over again through their televisions were developing PTSD symptoms. So it just vicarious trauma to the nth degree, you know, not even knowing someone, not even being there. Because they, they're constantly exposed to it over and over again. It's, and it's also, it's not like, you know, certainly we, we have exposure therapy. If I have somebody who has a phobia of spiders, there's a whole protocol right. that we're going to do to follow down that pathway of generally, gently and slowly exposing them to stimuli. In a safe environment. In a safe environment. But someone who's like sitting on their couch right. and seeing, you know, maybe in Seattle and they're just watching over and over again the, tw- the Twin they Towers They have no explode. control over what's being shown or how, unless you're just not watching. Right. So uh, we talk about what else? Any other factors? Yeah, um, those are the main factors. But then the symptoms that can be experienced can just are this really wide range. There are things that can be expected, which are fear, anxiety, certainly numbness, just shutting down, and which would also be the medical condition of shock. You can actually go into shock when you experience trauma like this. or it can come out as irritability, anger, sadness, feelings of guilt or blame. Um, certainly one of the, the biggest ones and what would be related to what you were talking about in 9-11 is that feeling of overwhelming hopelessness. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone's in the middle of a mass shooting event and you're pumping with adrenaline, you probably – you're, you're – Mental processes don't really take into consideration thinking about hopelessness or helplessness because you are in that fight or flight just trying to figure things out. There are some people that might shut down, but most people are just trying to figure it out, figure it out, figure it out. But afterwards, the hopelessness and the helplessness, reliving the trauma and not being able to control the outcome, that actually further traumatizes someone in that position. Nightmares and trouble sleeping is a huge one. And a term we use called hypervigilance. It means being overly vigilant, overly aware of your surroundings at all times. I mean, certainly cops are taught to be right. hypervigilant, but this is a different level. This is as if your world could – you could just be attacked at any time. So the way I deal with this a lot in debriefing officers after shootings because hypervigilance is one of those key sim- natural symptoms that's going to come up after a stressor like that and or could be a criteria down the road for PTSD. But I always tell people it's a Above and beyond what your normal is. So for average Joe Blow on the street, probably <laughs> doesn't have much of hypervigilance going on unless right. he feels, you know, threat um, for his safety. Police officers are always at level higher than everyone else because it's officer safety. You have to have your head on a swivel when you're at work. And you can't just shut that off. So they have a lot of habits that can be annoying. (laughs) Well, I remember how tense your back was when we first met because you chose the office. You chose the desk in our office with your back to the door. And you told me this is because I I saw your your back was like just nodded. I don't think I chose it because I would have not chosen that. Desk. No, no, we talked about it. You said this. Yeah, you said I'm going to I'm going to make myself because I'm really uncomfortable with this. So I need to 
Did I? Mean, I? Yeah. Oh, you I'm know, kind of needed... like proud of 10 oh, years no, ago, Oh, no, I remember. Shiloh. I've still got that picture of you. That's what I use as your ID photo in my phone. Of the back of my head? Yeah, of your of pon- my... yeah your ponytail. At <laughs> <laughs> the back of your head. <laughs> when I can put my hair in a ponytail? It's funny. I'm like the only psychologist at my office that has my desk so that I face my front door. <laughs> And we have two cops that actually work out of our office, and they're always like, ah, because <laughs> they have the same thing, and they're like, we know, we know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, hypervigilance, it, it, it comes out of um, when, you're, when the person is in fight or flight, and really there are switches being turned on in the brain and switches being turned off, the stuff you don't need. And that takes some time to balance back out. So it really is just – those switches need to stabilize again. And so people feel a real sense of fear and almost like a paranoia for their safety. So they feel hypervigilant and are looking over their shoulder and checking. Like a lot of cops will be in a shooting and then they know it's totally unrealistic, but they'll be checking the locks on their doors at night like three or four times. Just this this extra little urgency for safety for themselves yeah. and their families. So, yeah, hypervigilance is a really interesting one. It's hard to sort of wrap your mind around if you've never felt it. But but when you feel it, you'll know. <laughs> when you feel it, you know. And um, is it last year um, that I got to work with several people because it, at my agency, lots of people were present for the Las Vegas shooting, mass shooting that right. happened. So I had the privilege, I really think of it as a privilege of being able to work with some of the survivors from that and, you know, talk about fight or flight mode and a lot of them being in law enforcement and going into that very easily. But then the aftermath, you know, you talk about the hopelessness and some of that stuff really sinking in down the line was very interesting uh, to work with and really rewarding to see, see them come through that. Yeah, and especially for cops, you know, you're in that position of always educating them and encouraging them to find a place where you can relax, where you can go on, you know, trying to get a cop to take a vacation sometimes is just, I I can't get my partner to take a vacation to save my life. Please go for six weeks. Yes. So I can can get caught up. (laughs) Please leave. And then uh, something horrific happens like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a few, just a couple of more symptoms that can happen as a result of a traumatic event like this would be intrusive thoughts or memories. So replaying an incident over and over again at seemingly inopportune times, you know, just waiting in line at the DMV and suddenly you – someone drops a clipboard and you're immediately taken back to the right. shooting. It's the same thing that we would see in soldiers with PTSD. Right. And it, especially now, I mean, one of the things when I've worked with vets – I remember interviewing one of them who had – he was very hypervigilant about making sure the shocks on his car worked all the time because when he let them go – and he even got rid of his big crazy-ass four-wheeler right. and got a sedan that drove really smoothly because ever going over every bump mm-hmm. immediately took him back to when they were in Humvees and looking sure. for IEDs oh, in sure, the Middle sure. East. So – Concentration problems, memory problems, uh, and certainly the the big one is difficulties with relationships. And that is – that's a big marker in trauma is feeling that nobody knows what I've gone through, which is absolutely true. 
nobody can know. Even someone who has been through it with you can't necessarily know what your personal experience is. And that's one of the dangers that we don't really talk about very much when there's a certain way to be a support to someone who is a survivor of trauma if you yourself are a survivor of trauma. You have to be very careful not to create sort of a feedback loop where you're re-traumatizing each other or reinforcing unhealthy coping skills. Right. Because, yes, there can be multiple people in the same incident and you're all perceiving it and dealing with it in different ways. And some people may actually come from a culture or a family or a personal predilection for great communication. Right. They might have outgoing and effervescent and, and know how to communicate And so they're able to use that tool with some ease to move through that trauma. There are other people that don't. And that's going to have to be something. Unfortunately, I feel very strongly they're going to have to learn to do it because there is is no other way out of that prison. Right. There just isn't. Yet there is also nothing as bonding as two people who have gone through a trauma together and you have a level of understanding of like, you are the only one that gets it. Yes. No, no, no. I completely agree. I want to make sure that I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that at all. But they can still be experiencing it differently, but there's this understanding right. of like, you were there, you get it. But that's all. And on top of it is, it is a, a not fully... 100% truth that that is the only way through your trauma is knowing that somebody else has been through it. Right. It's just it's just not. Right. It feels like it is. Mm-hmm. You know, I I if I god forbid got skin cancer, I don't expect the surgeon to have had skin cancer, right? right. I expect them to have expertise on how to heal me. Right. And that's something that we run into in working with almost any client. I mean, whether they're in any kind of we're yeah. not going to walk in their shoes right. with, with much, probably, right. compared to, to what they're going through and why they're seeking treatment. Why don't we go ahead and get into Columbine and what happened that day? Why do you think this was so disturbing or jarring for, for you or for just everyone? That's a good question. I'm trying... Okay, so what I'm going to try and do is go back 20 years to where I was at that time. And I'll tell you the image that, like, I can see so clearly in my head with movement was by the time I saw it, it was the chopper view of the kids coming out with their hands over their heads. And it was just hundreds you know, because there were so many kids in school and they, they kept, kept going. Coming. Out. They kept like coming ants. and they kept coming. And I thought, I don't understand what's happening. And there were so few details. It was just, I remember just being really confused. Like, what, wait, what's good? They did what? And then, and I can't even, I can't even give you the points because I'm sure you're going to have these for your part of this today. All the ridiculous theories that yep. immediately, I can't even remember what they were, and I so and I you know now I know I would look at them as like completely dumbass, and we've even like there's been much written about how how wrong they were, right? But it was all, once again the media just hungry for you got to say something, Anything. you've got to say something, got to say something, and it was all BS. Yeah. It was all wrong. Yeah, 
I I think this was one of those sort of ongoing incidents that was big that I remember unfolding on CNN. You know, just really sitting down and watching. Um, I don't. I, I didn't watch the North Hollywood shootout live. I was in college um, when that was happening, which I have a very interesting piece, um, kind of way loose connection about that. But yeah, I, I just remember it's sort of this unfolding thing and watching the SWAT trucks get closer and the kid fall out of the window into the oh, arms right. oh, of yeah. the SWAT officer. And did he cut his leg on the window? Was it Well, the he one? was all shot up on his legs anyway. Right, okay. Um, and he was like about to pass out and finally pulled himself to the window. And they didn't even really catch him. I mean, you watch the video and he just kind of flops on top of the the SWAT truck that's there. But same, like all the kids coming up with their hands behind their heads and just streams of them coming out just seemed to take forever. But once you start hearing about what's happening, first of all, it's a school and it always is very, very unsettling when children are victims. And then on top of that, you learn that the perpetrators are children as well. So that is a, you know, that's a weird thing to sort of start to wrap your head around. For that time. And unfortunately, it's become all too common. That's why I wanted to talk about sort of bringing people back to then because it was, it was so unthinkable. And I remember that night Bill Clinton speaking and basically saying, if this can happen in Littleton, it can happen anywhere. Mm. And that was really frightening. But for me, this also is is sort of a, a hallmark when I think back to law enforcement. I wasn't in law enforcement quite – well, I, I was working as a police cadet. I wasn't a sworn officer yet. But I remember it changed law enforcement tactics like only one other scenario – in, in my career and time generation has in that officers waited for the SWAT team before they went inside the school. And right after that, we completely changed policies and tactics on active shooters. That if there are kids dying in a school being shot at, you're not going to wait for the SWAT team to get there. You're going to absolutely put yourself in even more harm's way than you do on a daily basis to save children. So, and not just children, but active shooter scenarios, then there became all these different guidelines of how those would be handled. And at first it was kind of a, um, you know, you have to wait. So there's four of you. So you could all sort of walk in a diamond shape. So you're covering all sides. And that that's actually how we trained when I was in law enforcement. Now it's like, first, whoever's there, go, go in. Um, So that, and then the other thing that changed law enforcement really was the North Hollywood shootout because we didn't carry high-powered rifles before that. Well, nobody before that was wearing, like, military-grade body body armor. armor. Right. Interestingly, the only other bank those guys robbed prior to the one in um, North Hollywood was in Littleton, Colorado. Wow. Weird, right? That's creepy. Yeah. So those are the things that I remember when I think of myself sort of back and watching this unfold and why it was just such a big deal because maybe maybe people today that don't know any different of these mass shootings happening are like well what makes that one different it wasn't the first ever but it was very impactful with all the things we've talked about with the media coverage and watching 
it unfold live on television, 24-hour news cycle. And what else are you going to do? I mean, you can't, I mean, on one hand, you can't ask the media to not cover it. Oh, right. You know, but it's all part and parcel of of potentially aggravating it and escalating it in all the years to come. But what are you going to do? I mean, it's right. it's, it's a done deal there. Right. Yeah, I, I think <clears throat> that's really difficult. You know, when, when you think of, well, how we can't censor everything. And I love consuming it, being a news junkie and and – finding this stuff but okay but here okay i know i agree with you and i would just like there to be a little more censoring of news anchors we've just heard that they are satanists right or we you know just stop it just say we don't know nobody knows anything nobody knows anything they have to talk (laughs) yeah yeah I love my high-speed pursuits here in Southern California. Actually, a girlfriend of mine and I always text each other when there's one. We're like, Channel 5, you know, <sighs> it's happening. But then I see these idiots, like, driving slow and waving out the window when they're, like, being chased. And I'm like, oh, that's for the people like me that are watching right now. I've begged you to get help. God, I love a good pursuit. <laughs> it's the best. So let's talk about the event. We're going to do a quick rundown of it just to sort of set the scene a little bit more here. Essentially, two high school seniors at Columbine High School put together actually not even a great plan, kind of a moderately planned out plan that fell apart um, for many reasons. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. uh, Because they were wanting to do way more damage, but their building of and timing of bombs didn't work out so well. But they went on a a rampage with a whole variety of firearms, uh, shotguns, Tech Nines, um, and, and handguns, and ended up killing twelve students at their school and one teacher, as well as then themselves. I believe he was a coach too, wasn't he? Wasn't he the girls? basketball coach? I think you're correct. Yes, I think it was girls basketball. And 24 others were injured as well. And then, I mean, just as you talked about, everyone else being traumatized and psychologically injured, I would say, as well as people watching from their homes. But immediately, as you touched on, false information started coming out about the shooters. Because when you have something like this that, again, is so shocking and unbelievable, our brains want to fill in gaps and ask for answers. It, it's always why, right? I, but the media really jumped on that and started facilitating filling in what we wanted to know with just what random people were saying, what, you know, going off of maybe what they were wearing, really thin threads yeah. of information that was coming out. Which then distract from and divert away resources towards actually getting the correct information. And they actually, in in some other cases, I mean, not necessarily this one, but in many other cases where the media is just chewing and spitting, chewing and spitting, chewing and spitting, that becomes a viral meme in itself where people, well, what about the gray headband? I'm just making something up. What about the gray headband? And that represents... 
well, that may have never been a thing. Right. So stop talking about it. <laughs> and it's hard to undo that initial stuff. You can't. I mean, can't. we know that from um, the Atlanta Olympic bombings, right? Right. Everyone still thinks Richard Jewell was the bomber. Yep. Poor guy. Interestingly enough, what year was that? Um, that was was that the eighty four? No, no, no. Eighty four was here. That was ninety six. Ninety six. Okay. So <clears throat> I remember my genteel Southern 94. mother. Ninety six. Ninety four. When it was all going down, on I was home for the holiday or something. And I was sitting with her, and they were showing the news, and she shook her head and she goes, "They have pilloried that young man. He did not do it." I mean, before anything came out, she just wow. looked at it, and I said, "Mom, how can you?" How can you tell? She goes, "Oh no, not him." <laughs> I mean, I don't know what I don't know what insight she had into it, but right. you know, to know already here is this this woman going, you know, mm-hmm. very well educated, very insightful woman to go. She already saw what was being done. It was just this this thing was being spun up that right became right. problematic. Oh, he, he, he did not have a good life I'm after sure that. It was not. it was bad. No, poor that poor man probably saved lots of lives and and actually, you know, helping people out of there. But back to Columbine. So with the two shooters, definitely now in in sort of psychological autopsies and information from school officials and family and all the collateral information there was i'm going to call him like the leader and the follower the the leader or the mastermind behind this plan definitely definitely more psychopathic tendencies a lot of anger homicidality going on and then paired up with someone who was more of a follower definitely just depressed and suicidal and probably quite angry at some point as well, but turning that from the inside out. Well, after teaming up. Yeah, I mean, I I tend to. I mean, there's some. I wish that there was a general standardized way of of stating this pair. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, sometimes in some of the psych literature, it's the dominant. And submissive role, which I don't, which that gets you. you know, don't type dom and submissive <laughs> no. when you're at work because then, it, you know, you're going to some not suitable work pages. <laughs> but it's also it could be more dominant versus passive. But even then, there's a lot of information that is out there that indicates that the supposedly the more passive submissive of the two actually was the higher functioning in spite of the depression and the anxiety. This guy had somewhat of a social life. Yeah. Oh, they were you social. Know, I mean, they, sure. he was. They were not like these loner outcasts. outcasts, you know, sort of antiheroes that they became over the years in this um, mm-hmm. this really miswritten narrative. Right. But it was just that the their various bits of psychopathy dovetailed with each other into sure. a very toxic relationship which can happen like it's the the Bonnie and Clyde it's the you know Hamolka and her mm-hmm. husband it's mm-hmm. it's these just yeah. maybe if they had never met maybe they wouldn't have influenced each other in that way but this was a really toxic combination right so in preparation again like when we first were diving into this and I was sort of having this like, where do I start moment, I actually started with Sue Klebold's book and it's called A Mother's Reckoning, Living in the Aftermath of a Tragedy. 
And I think that was the perfect place for me to start was just what's a book I haven't read yet on Columbine and what can be a different spin? Because I just don't want to read a recounting of it and all of that. And you're right. Incredibly social. Was at prom three days before this. Um, He, you know, they had just visited out-of-state college where he was going to go, you know, future-oriented to some extent. I mean, I think there was also with the planning of this, like we see with a lot of suicidal individuals, once they've resigned themselves to, I'm going to do this, there becomes this elevation and mood and they're sort of, you know, now I'm... I've made my decision. I made my decision. It's relieving. Or I wonder if maybe it wasn't real to him yet. Maybe. I don't. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, it, the the prom thing seems to me like that's that's. It seems. Really... Um, it seems, especially after they found his writings, that the last two years of his life was really when the depression and suicidality was sinking in, um, and there was a culture of bullying at Columbine. And, you know, there's there's a caste system, just right. like everywhere else. But it seems as if there was really the hierarchy were at the top really was not just athletes or popular kids like you're going to see at most schools, but also those that were very involved in their faith. And anyone else who was not quite outspoken about, you know, being Christian or not, that they were bullied for those reasons as well. So, um, so yeah, I, I, bullying seemed to have been alive and well at the school. And there's actually videotape evidence of some of them and their friends just filming down the hallway, walking down the hall, and football players like checking them, like, you know, elbow straight into the side. Yeah. And they just keep walking like it's a normal occurrence. And, you know, that's what they have to deal with, sort of thing. Um, but no, they weren't social outcasts. They had social support systems. They had friends. They were attending dances. They were typical teenage boys, like not home and going out and doing things. Um, but there was this also this secretive relationship between the two because they'd been in trouble before. They had gotten arrested together for breaking into a van. There was some vandalism stuff at school. And they were separated. They were actually told to stay. Their parents kept them away from each other for a year. And then when they graduated, interesting, with the more psychopathic one, he was able – they went to diversion for the the arrest instead of, you know, it being on the record. So they attended some classes and stuff. But he was able to manipulate and dupe the people there so well that they – gave him the highest marks and recommended that he actually be released from diversion early. He was just a fantastic liar from yeah. everything that I've read. But um, but yeah, their parents kept them away from each other for a year. And, and that's the mother's biggest regret is I wish we'd never let them start hanging back out together. Yeah, that's interesting because now I need to go read that book because I was still under the impression that the parents were completely disengaged and not involved. That's so one of you, the big myths, at that, least with at least with that um, the mother that wrote the book. Definitely well, not, and and I get yeah. it. It's her story; she can tell it however she right. wants. Right, and there might be a bias there, but I do know having having you know signed people up for diversion programs, whether they're diversion right out of prison or right out of jail, like that's a lot of work. It's not like mm-hmm. that's something. 
Right. That the parent can just go, oh, did you go to diversion today? There's like constantly checking, making sure they're hitting all the benchmarks that right. are required. Right. So interesting. Yeah, that that was learn something new. Very much, um, you know, the sentiment that they were, the parents were checked out, and that these were sort of entitled kids that, you know, they let them do whatever they want. Um, and that does not seem to be the case at all, at least with the one parent set of parents, which is terrifying. Again, that's the – it can happen anywhere. It's sort of like we were talking with – remember the quote that Amanda Knox said, like, if it can be me, it can be any one of you. Well, okay. The only thing I will say, not having read the book, is that someone with the, this level of antisocial traits – would have likely been acting out in enough ways to be noticed significantly, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's some, some things that should have been ha- that would have been happening. That I mean, I, I'm not placing blame. I'm just saying that you know there might be a little bit of whitewashing, yeah, and yeah. sort of and, and because every you know every parent does not need to be afraid that their child is going to be a serial killer, right? You know, right? I mean, most kids do have a killer instinct. But <laughs> <laughs> But they're, they're still in survival <laughs> developmental mode, you know, there's – but that doesn't mean that they're going to end up, you know, in – what was that wonderful movie? We need to talk about Kevin. Did oh, you, you saw that yes. with Tilda Swinton? Yeah, oh, That's a good one, which is very much related to right. these type of shootings. And right. In fact, if you haven't seen We Need to Talk About – is it Kevin? Uh-huh. You know, if we need yeah. to talk about Kevin, please go see it. Tilda Swinton is um, – everybody's amazing in it. Yeah, it, it it's my impression from not just her book but – Everything else that I've read, even over the years, that he was a really depressed, suicidal kid. Wow. And this was I, – I forget who put it like this, but they said that the the other kid, the, the leader or the dominant one, went to the school that day to kill people – and figured he'd probably be dead in the process, where the other one went to die that day and may kill people in the process as that's, well. It's interesting. That's what a lot of people on Reddit are saying. Oh, really? There's a lot of. I mean, there. Yeah. It just you can really go down the Reddit hole. The Reddit hole. There. The Reddit hole. I the like Reddit that. Hole. Copyright that. Uh, I'm <laughs> sure. Someone I, else. I'm sure I'm not the first who said <laughs> that. But but they have echoed that sentiment too. That those were the two different. Um, dynamics and drivers, which actually goes along with what you were saying with him being he was going to prom and he was looking at colleges and, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Well, I think it's really interesting when you sort of twist this to look at it as a murder-suicide, because that's a really interesting dynamic when we look at that with, you know, murder-suicide, you think husband and wife or, you know, some sort of uh, romantic relationship. But, I mean, really this falls under that category for both of them. I mean, they took their own lives. There's conspiracy theories out there about, you know, how they died or that one of them killed the other and then himself. But basically, it, none of that's ever been proven. But it's a mass murder and then suicide. And again, just sort of if you're looking at that um, – that it, what had been an internal suicidality for so long, but then pair that with enough anger triggers that's going on, you now have someone who is starting to dehumanize or starting to lash out at people 
like we said before, that he perceives has wronged him. Yes. Right. So it's, it's a target. It's a it's something to focus all of those negative emotions on. It's the lightning rod for all of that rage. There you go. I like that. Um, so we had a really interesting question posed by someone on Instagram who DM'd us. And, you know, in talking about the media, um, so the the more dominant of the two had a website where he talked a lot of about a lot of violence, a lot of his plans, a lot of really scary stuff where there was a set of parents in the community who had reported that. And the cops had actually written a search warrant to go search his house, but it, for whatever reason, fell through the cracks, never got in front of a judge, mm. never happened. Um, but we had a question by uh, one of our followers at Brewer Baking who essentially asked, you know, in this day and age, do you think they would have been caught because they would have put more out on social media about their plans? Well, that's what I do. <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> or, I mean, it's it's part of my job Dr. description. Scott? No, I mean, that's a phenomenal question. And, you know, it didn't have to exist before something like this happened, but it absolutely does exist. And that's, that's no, that's a really great question because part of what I do in working with I'm, I don't, I'm not employed by law enforcement. I'm employed by another agency, but I work with law enforcement. And when we get a referral, it will be, I mean, there have been times where it's been the CIA is, has gotten notification of a website and they got because somebody called in Virginia regarding something that their friend in Las Vegas had seen and they think it may be someplace in Southern California. And by the time they track all that down, we see it's a school and this is what's been going on. And immediately we jump in. And it's when we go in – I mean, I my job is to go in after the person has been uh, seen face-to-face and either hospitalized or arrested. And we – we investigate these kind of things all the time. And, you know, you have to get past the minimization. Oh, I was joking. You know, there's a generation now, the younger generation, especially like the middle schoolers and early high school will just pop off with a threat like that because they do think it's funny and they do think it's a joke. Right. And, you know, unfortunately what tends to happen more than often, more than not is it immediately impacts their entire school career. Wow. Like it, it immediately, like school is either going to uh, suspend them, expel them, uh, have them arrested, have them blocked immediately from the campus. Don't ever come back here. Zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. And I'll tell you, LAUSD, not that they, they – LAUSD has a wonderful program to prevent these things, and they are on top of it. We work with them a lot, but I have great admiration for their combination of law enforcement and mental health. So long, long answer to saying we do our best, but this is what we do. If there's something on media, and the good thing about social media in this respect is it's so ubiquitous that anybody sees it, you get it immediately. Right. And there are some really great parents out there that are monitoring their kids' Instagram feeds and go, oh, no, 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 I'm calling the school on this immediately. Good. So, yeah, it, the, the, the landscape has changed in that respect for the better. Yeah, I, I mean, specifically to these two, if they had been living in this day and age of technology, you know, if you're making a website and you're putting it out there, it, 
he was feeding some need to sort of get attention or get it out there. So I think he would have had probably pretty poor impulse control of not putting it somewhere that would have been yeah. flagged immediately. Yeah. Um, but. And I, I don't, and I don't think the I don't think the warrant would have fallen through the cracks. No, I, don't, I don't think no, now right. the warrant would fall through the cracks at all. Yeah, I'd love to know what happened with that or why or. Yeah. Um, it would have been explained to the parents. It would have been explained like I've been in that position where I've talked to parents, and I'm gr- and they feel like they're being grilled. I don't. I hope I'm not coming across as really harsh, but I'm asking: Have you gone through their closets? Have you gone through every drawer? Have you emptied the entire room? When's the last time you went in your basement? When's the last time you went in your attic? When's the last time you emptied that, uh, you know, that car that's been on blocks in your garage for the last 10 years? Right. Have you looked at their journals? Do you have passwords? What's your what's your your son's uh, Instagram feed? What's the one? The secret that, one. What's the secret one? Do you know how to use the pull-down menu? Do you know how to... It's, and we have to educate them on it. Sure. And, but that's something that nobody knew how to do back then. Right. Beca- and, and we know how to do it, unfortunately, because of this tragedy. Well, and and they eventually did afterwards serve these search warrants, obviously, on both ho- right. homes. Um, and I believe that, that one of the investigators who she, she kept in close um, communication with the parents, but basically said these guns were so were, – we found the spaces where they were hidden – and they were so well hidden that our detectives went home and tore their kids' beds apart because they were all on high alert. So Shit. I am not looking hard enough. Um, where it was like in between, where like you would have to take beds apart, you know, and it was, I mean, that's a level to where it's at. If someone's going to keep a secret and they have a plan like that and they've gone the extra mile to purchase these weapons and, and all of that, I mean. Hmm. They're not going to let it get foiled. No. If they can. If they can. And kids are smart. Kids are smart. I mean, kids I know so we say they're smarter. stupid, no, but no, no, they're no. smart. Well, they're smart and stupid at the same time. And Just in different ways than, than adults are smart and stupid at the same time. Right. Um, but we think – my big takeaway from her book was, you know, you think you know your kids. And we're not great at judging how people are lying. Um, whether you're a parent, whether you're a psychologist, whether you're a cop, you know, there's been research study after study of, okay, are you a human lie detector? And we are way – actually, the more your job sort of feels like it would fit with it, <laughs> the worse people do. Like just I think your so, average yeah. person, it's like chance. It's like 51% of the time that you'll guess that people are lying. Cops, psychologists, teachers are actually <laughs> worse. Well, I think it's it's over it's over stimuli, and being in that environment where you, as opposed to somebody like you know, back to talking about my mom, like my mom could spot a liar, mm-hmm. you know, or oh, like, sure. or she just like, oh, that that's that's not that's not a good person. Yeah, there's and I'd always liars. go like, how did you know that? And the, you know, it's that gut feeling, I think, and but gut feeling and instinct and um, what do you what do you call it? Intuition mm-hmm. probably gets pretty wonky with a lot of cross signals when you're actually sort of marinating in this milieu. So with the internet, should we talk about columbiners? Yeah, I guess so. Because it's a thing. It's a thing. We need to add it to our list of things. Oh, I don't know this. That, I, I'm not going to put the, like, I'm not going to put them on the list of my, of, an, oh. of annoying careers. Oh. oh, okay. We have that list too. I have that list. Because we have who, our list of our other list. 
Who's on that list? Of like weird people and No, they're on that list, but I don't want to say that because then I'll have like all my former I know. <laughs> a lot of people will be mad at us. Right. We have our own ongoing list. It's pretty hilarious. So they're But they're not a danger to anybody. Like a oh. like a magician who does nothing but bird acts. <laughs> Oh, Which that's I find a double. that's a double. Because that magicians are on the list and people who own and birds. Bird, are well, on it's the list. not just bird owners; it's crazy bird owners because crazy bird owners are like unlike any other pet owner. But they're crazy. <laughs> so, oh look, and I and I'm biased. I had to do a magic show at the Carson. What I was a my one of my last dance jobs was years ago was at the Carson Casino in Carson, California. And our mainliner was a magician who did nothing but bird acts. And those birds would shit all over the stage. And And then then, you'd have to dance. Oh, it was awful. I'd be like, I'd be like, those fucking birds cleaning off my dance shoes. So you're in Carson, California. It's just like, it's like the, literally the turducken of humiliation. (laughs) Oh, dear God. Doing doing a a magic show with birds in Carson, California. Yeah. Did you just pull the plug on your dancing career after that? <laughs> no, actually, I I, I went to uh, no. Then the next bad one was in Vegas, and Vegas was definitely the the termination of that career. <laughs> anyway, back to what we're talking about. No, let's talk more about this. <laughs> so, Columbiners are again a group of individuals who commune online, um, primarily on Tumblr. Is Tumblr still thing? Yeah. Um, well, now that now that they took all the porn off Tumblr, it's it's becoming sort of its own weird Reddit thing. I think they kind of I think they focused on the wrong thing. They could have left the porn alone. Not that I give a shit, right. but like they could have left that alone and gone for some of the weird violence and and supremacist movement type stuff that yeah. is on there. Yeah. So they're individuals again who are, are seeking each other out online, um, as we've talked about, and they are obsessed with Columbine. They scrutinize the investigation documents. They go over blueprints of the school. They are looking at writings from the shooters that have been made public. Um, you know, they don't even, they don't just know the victim's names, but they know the names of the students that were next to the victim when they died and just like obsessed, know every inch of this thing. Um there's lots of theories, lots of conspiracy theories that come out of it. A lot of that sort of worship and idolization yeah. that we're talking about before, not dissimilar to sort of the incel community, like how they have, have idolized some shooters and, and talk about it. Right. And once again, and creating again. sort of this virtual insular intellectual and emotional bubble where you're in an echo chamber and you're only hearing, you're not hearing anybody. There's, you know, there's nobody that can go on an incel board or uh, a Columbine or board and go, yeah, you're full of shit. Right. Because it's the Wild West. Any any crazy, any crazy conspiracy theory is going to be seen as possibly legitimate. Right. And they, they they're often um, connecting with the fact that these individuals suffered from depression or suffered from anxiety or suffered from suicidality. And um, they're, they're identifying with that as well as latching on to other things, like maybe they're victims of bullying as well, and latching on to some of the stuff that we said isn't true. Right. Um, but has become as, virtually true. Right. Just by, virtually true. Yeah. It's, it's, it has that lore to it to where they're saying, oh, I identify with that. 
let me you know learn everything about this or for whatever reason becoming obsessed with it so just yesterday now again we're going to be releasing this on the anniversary but um wednesday of this week first thing in the morning i'm getting ready for work and i see the news alert about this 18 year old woman who has flown to denver who's a columbiner obsessed with the case and gets off a plane and buys a shotgun and ammunition which is amazing to me because i had no idea that Colorado did not have at least a 24-hour waiting or – I mean, she passed a DOJ check because that's that's required no matter right. where you are in the States. But, but, geez, just get off a plane. You're not a, not a non-resident. Just yeah. swoop on in and um, – which 18 years old, <laughs> I'm sorry, but she's probably had a really tough life because she looks – she looks about 30, thirty-six or thirty-seven. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she. I'm like eighteen-year-old. Did I read that right? Yeah. What's going on? So, um, she made some undisclosed threats to. Well, we don't know, but essentially, it prompted a lockdown of Columbine and like twenty other schools. Yeah. Um, and there was this uh, a big manhunt for her. Um, by the end of the day, there was resolution to it in that she took her own life. Right. I mean, I'd. She's also running. I mean, I'm not trying to make this as a joke, but it is a somewhat. It I question or I'm interested in how she went from wearing like a camo and a black tee mm-hmm. when she bought the the gun to running through the woods naked with Has a loaded shotgun. That all of them That's are? the last one I read. It I could, know. I read that again, you know what? You're right. Who knows? Who knows? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> it sounds. It's also not the most important thing. The most important thing is that there was someone who clearly is mentally ill and this is something i want to i want to make you know we we've used that a lot i've said ill and mentally ill several times you know this is such an unfair representation of people who have mental illness because the vast majority of people with any kind of mental illness whether it be mood or psychotic spectrum they are not violent they do not act in these ways this is just a particular nexus of really toxic elements that then gets caught in a feedback loop in that echo chamber right right yeah good point so yeah there's it's so interesting to look at how school safety has evolved over the years and i was just diving into articles about this day before yesterday and then yesterday when i saw the news headline i thought that poor guy that you know is in charge of security for that school district has is not going to sleep for a few days. Yeah. His phone is ringing off the hook right now. Um, but there's probably no safer county than that in which where Columbine is as far as where to have your child. They have cameras everywhere. Um, dispatch from the police department can lock and unlock doors in schools. It's pretty amazing. Um, but they're assessing threats all the time. And can you imagine? It's just crazy town around the anniversary. And this being the the twentieth, I know four twenty. There's just a I bunch felt, of things. I know. I felt bad. It's also full moon. <laughs> oh God! Um, but I I really felt bad for thinking about you know all these schools on lockdown and these kids are just trying to go to school. This is beyond you know before they were even born, and here they're on lockdown because some crazy 
woman. Well, exactly. And how, you know, to an extent, as a talking about a psychological defense mechanism, how is a young person in that position actually able to understand what is happening? Right. I'm not and I'm not minimizing what these wonderful young people and, you know, I, every young person has the potential to be wonderful. And, right. you know, they deserve the chance to be wonderful because they're, you know, they're trying to figure life out. But on one hand, we can get pissed off that someone makes a, a threat because it's a joke. And on the other hand, I completely understand that they just don't get it. They haven't lived through it. And part of me doesn't want them to have to live through it. Part of, them wants, part of me wants them to be able to say it's a joke and everything go back to normal. I know. But unfortunately, that's just not the world anymore. No. It's not. We've moved on, and I don't think that we'll ever get back to that place. I don't think so either. It's the new normal is this extraordinary abnormal. Right, right. One of the uh, school safety initiatives that's really been adopted is – and how they do things now and, you know, even um, my child being in elementary school, they have drills. You know, the little, little kids don't know what it is, but, you know, they talk about these drills if there's a bad man that comes into the school or – I guess that's pretty sexist, but <laughs> – um, but but um, locks light and out of sight. So locking doors – of the classrooms or gym or wherever you're at internally, turning off lights and getting out of view if there's windows is really pretty standard. And I think they've really started, you know, when they can, replacing doors that can be barricaded right. more easily. And even those that can't be replaced, I know that there are now attachments that go on the hydraulics. You just slide it on mm-hmm. and twist a key and it just – even though it's plastic or vinyl, it completely shuts down the door ne- mechanism. Yeah, That's not going to work. That's the new normal. It is. I'm sure you've seen like some of the fails too, like where they come in and do drills, and then teachers are getting like hit in the back of the head with fake airsoft guns, with all these terrible, traumatizing drills that they're running. I, you know, that's that's a whole other. That's a whole other show. That was actually oh, they talked so about it badly since done. Yeah, that's so badly done. And then the defensiveness, instead of just being—I mean, you and I work with a level of cops that that would never happen with. That would never happen. So the idea that some dumbass—and I'm sorry, going on record, just saying mm-hmm. some dumbass—engaged in that behavior and then tried to defend it. Right. Okay, you—you you got an ego problem, dude. Yeah. Yeah. But there's lots of companies out there that, you know, have popped up and developed these safety programs for schools, and it is the new normal. Right. You know, I I wanted to – I'm going to totally steal. I'm going to give him credit. But one of my colleagues here, a social worker, Daniel, um, I love that he – I get to work with him because he has a real East Coast sensibility and went to school in the East Coast. And he – it's really neat how coming from a different geographical area, we can have a different approach and perspective towards treatment and outcome and research just by nature of where we were educated and how we were educated. And he, we were talking about this subject when he was saying, hey, what are you guys recording about this afternoon? And I, when, he, when I said, you know, the mass shooting and, and Columbine, he said, you know, it's so extraordinary the way it – and if, if I could put, you on, put him on camera, if you could see my hands, he said if it was extraordinary the way it cracked our reality – 
and he made a cracking motion mm-hmm. with his hands. Like he's breaking a stick. Like he's too. just breaking it. It like that it just everything broke at that moment. The in like you were talking about, it's the loss of innocence on a grand national scale in the way that has unfortunately become normal. And un- and like he was you know, he went on to espouse like what I thought was really cool from actually a psychoanalytic perspective of talking about how it's a really big phenomenon. And then the conversation he and I got into was the expectations that we place on young people today are so overwhelming. And one of the movements that I'm glad has kind of died down, and this was this was pushed by several faith-based organizations, which was trying to get their children go out and befriend that person. Right. And make of make them a friend, and you know that way you can stop the killer, stop them from becoming the killer. And that wasn't what they were saying obliquely, but it's what they were implying. And that is the absolute wrong message to send because that's what we call first order change. You don't go out and fix something with first order change. You fix it with second and ter- tertiary mm-hmm. order change, mm-hmm. where you change the context, you change the, the environment, you change the culture. Exactly. So how about we create uh, a a zero tolerance for bullying? That's what should be happening. And then addressing people that are falling through the cracks and still let them be the individuals that they need to be to be their best selves and respecting who they are, but not letting it sort of ferment into this violence. But placing the responsibility and going back to I'm not going to talk about the the person because I've already mentioned him four times this season, the risk evaluator. But say that this had become the general way that you approach this is like, you know, your daughter is going to school and she's super popular and she's cheerleader. Hey, honey, you know what? I want you to go to um, little Sally Strickland and I want you to make friends with her and blah, 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 blah. Well, you're creating a false relationship and that's not about altruism. It's about a means to an end. It's like you're making an algorithm of human interaction and outcome. And that actually has the potential to make it worse, to create a real danger. Because when that relationship is found to not be real, right. then you trigger something that's even worse. So my idea when we talked about incels of nominating one woman just to go sleep with all the incels wouldn't work. I don't think it won't fix the problem. I don't think that would fix it. Dang it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, but, but, but good on you for coming up with that very strange idea. I mean, it, someone has to take one for the team and maybe, maybe somebody willing to do it. There maybe, might be. Maybe it would work. Maybe not. Just kidding. Okay. So I, I just wanted to know, I thought this was really cool kind of to end on. So um, if people who live through the attack at Columbine, I mean, talking about young people and their potential, I mean, they've gone on to become doctors and nurses and counselors and first responders. And five of them returned to Columbine to teach alongside 13 educators who remain from those days. So I thought that was really neat. I mean, how neat is that? It's amazing. And it, it's wonderful. And it's inspiring. And, you know, as someone who's on the outside of that, and yes, I've lived my own challenges and my own traumas, as you have as well. We haven't lived that one. And I've seen terrible things. And I've, and I've engaged in the reparation of terrible things. But as an outsider, 
that's a that's a hero. Like, and I can't imagine that I would have the the fortitude to do it. That's amazing. Yeah. So I really have nothing but admiration for the survivors and their their ongoing efforts. And and there is no competition as to who's surviving the best or who's doing the best. Anybody that gets up and walks away from this and continues to breathe and try to move, even is trying to move forward as a hero. Right. Well said. Well said. So that's going to wrap it up for today. We're going to follow up with our next episode out probably pretty shortly as a little bit of a follow-up. It it won't be as long of an episode, but we're going to talk about what it is in a situation like this that allows people to move back and move back into a normal range of functioning. And that's really, it comes down to one word, it's resilience. And we'll talk about that next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. So look for us online. Hey, we're coming up on the Chicago uh, Festival. We're so excited. But sooner than that, we're doing the Pasadena Lit Fest. Lit Fest. Oh, my gosh. If you are local. So. Locals, please come out and say hi. We'd love to see you at Lit Fest. Yes, we're going to be on a – well, they haven't decided on location yet. So it will either be at the Pasadena Playhouse or at Vroman's Bookstore. Okay. So um, we will give you updates via social media as soon as it comes out. Um, But we're going to be on a panel with true crime authors and a couple of other podcasters. White Wine True Crime is going to be the other uh, podcast that's going to be there. And Steve Hodel is going to be there, who we talked about a bunch in our last episode. So exciting. The Black Dahlia stuff. So, uh, yeah, please, please look for that stuff. If you register for the Chicago True Crime Podcast Festival, when you register, it will ask you to put in names of podcasts that you're excited to see. So make sure you mention us there. We have some excited, exciting things planned for you. Not only did we just announce today that we're doing our live show crossover with Getting Off podcast. Um, but yeah, we're, we're going to be able to mingle a lot and, and have we some think, swag. We think merch. we're going to have the best swag. We've got some really good ideas for we swag. We do. We do. So. Um, okay. Did we do that? We did our sign off. We did our sign off. (laughs) Love you guys. guys. We'll see you next time. Bye bye.